HMS Diamond heads home for repair. Is there a problem with the Type 45 destroyers? The butcher of Bosnia, Ratko Mladic, is jailed for life. And Op Shader, the pilot's view. Iraqi troops were taking casualties, so we had really no other option but to, to take that risk with going right down to, to low fuel and making sure we could get that weapon to do its job, which it did. HMS Diamond is on her way back from a mission in the Gulf. It's been reported there are problems with a propeller. No other Type 45 destroyer is available to replace her as they are all undergoing maintenance in Portsmouth. Well, I'm joined by Naval Analyst Professor Emeritus Eric Grove as well as BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Eric, what's going on? Well, the 45s have a very bad mechanical reputation. Basically, basically, the mechanical system doesn't work properly. They took a, quote, risk, unquote, on the gas turbine, uh, I think, to get it built in Britain ra ra you know, rather than one you know, source from the United States. And it has a quite, a, quite a sophisticated regeneration system to make it um, notionally more efficient. But this makes it stall, and it's very difficult to restart when it does stall. And to compound the problem further, the diesel engine isn't powerful enough to keep the all-electric ship running uh, when they're out of gas turbine power. So there have been serious mechanical problems with the class. This, I think, is the first time that there's been a propeller problem. So it's probably not you know, true to say that she's broken down. But you know, when I first heard she had problems, I assumed, in fact, it was, it was because of the usual gas turbine problem, but, uh, but clearly not. But, it, but the fact that there are no other Type 45s to replace her demonstrates, A, that the availability of the Type 45s is not very good, and B, that in fact the fleet is very much overstressed. 19 frigates and destroyers just are not enough. Indeed, and these are the ships that are meant to protect the new carriers. That's right, yes. I mean, it's thought that the carrier, if it's lucky, will have two, will have two, two British ships protecting it at least. And of course, the Type 45 is extremely effective. It can cover 1,800, uh, 1800 square miles of area. It's a, it's a very effective air defence ship if its engines work, because, of course, if the engines go down, then it doesn't have the power for the radar to work, and uh, it's somewhat stymied. Christopher Lee, it would appear that the propeller's gone down, but not the engine, so how will she be getting back from the Gulf? Well... You have to assume that, that she can get back on one engine, simple as that. Otherwise, you get a tow. And she's due back in 10 days. Uh, again, one engine coming home on, I don't know, six, seven, eight knots, uh, whatever. But when you think what they've been trying to do, if your guys on board cannot get at the problem, it means that she has. they believe it has to come out of the water. So it's either sort of tail-in shafts, four-by-eight cutlass bearings, or, or, or the shaft or, or, or it itself. And then you have to get, in, get into dock, take off the, uh, the whole lot, the, the propeller and things. So it's not necessarily the propeller itself. It's a spindle that sort of turns it round, uh, etc. But coming back, it has to be lame on, 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 one, on one propeller. Do you know, I can't think, apart from the Type 12, no, the Type 14, I can't think of a frigate that the Navy's bought or had built in post-war uh, post Britain that didn't have something wrong with it rather radically at one stage or other. Uh, and we're getting rid of one of the best ones we've ever had, the, the Type 23, because we have to. But when you consider the simplicity of it, the Type 45 is probably the best air defence destroyer in the world today. 
It has the most sophisticated up at the top radars, target acquisition, etc., where you think that's important, the sort of stuff that can go wrong. Mm. But what's going wrong are simple things. Like, first of all, build me a ship, build me a ship that will go uh, as all conventional ships can do. You could put actually the stuff that you, that you drive Type 23s with and still have the best up top mm. air defense vessel. And that seems to be in the mistake they've been as ever, they've tried to be too clever. All right, Eric Grove, uh, supposing you're in the Royal Navy today and this is your job to sort out, what would you do about it? Well, I think, well, I mean, as, as Chris says, you know, she'll, she'll have to be sort of taken out of the and, and the and the thing repaired, which, of course, will will delay availability. That's one less ship, only one ship out of six. I mean, I think I think what needs to be done is that the refit cycle for the type for the type 45s needs to be increased. Proved it can be. Can it be? Diesels. Can it be? Well, it, I think with some difficulty actually, because the whole navy is stretched, the whole support system is stretched at the moment. I think the navy is very, very taut. So we're back it, to recruiting know, more engineers, are we? Well, we, well, we need to have them, but the whole navy needs more personnel. I mean, in, in, in a sense, the navy appears to be turning on, on on itself and saying, well, you know, let's let's sort of, if not do away with the Royal Marines, reduce the Royal Marines, so it can use, you know, their personnel slots to actually run the rest of the fleet. Unconfirmed, the of navy course, as yet. The navy is in something of crisis. I think I don't think that's an overstatement, and it's so taut that if a ship suffers. A, a mechanical problem, and ships do suffer mechanical problems because they're sophisticated pieces of kit, uh, then, uh, you know, one needs a spare. But there aren't any spares because the Navy has been down to the bone. Eric, Nineteen frigates Eric, and destroyers are just not enough. Eric, hang on before you got, get rid of the Royal Marines. Um, you say well, it's so. well, sophisticated bits and pieces. To. You know, this is not sophisticated engineering, the sort of thing that is being going wrong. It is over-engineering, probably by desk officers who wanted to improve uh, the vessel as it was as being built. The other thing to consider, if I were a commander at the moment, in any of the type five other Type 45s, I'd want to be told what was wrong with this particular Type 45, because she, shouldn't we be looking to see it might happen to us as well? Now, Eric, while we've got you on, let's talk about the, the missing Argentine submarine. An RAF Voyager aircraft has arrived in Argentina from RAF Bryce Norton, carrying three tonnes of equipment, including 12 life support pods. First time an RAF aircraft has landed in Argentina since the Falklands War. Why can't a submarine that's in trouble surface in an emergency? Because it's lost its power, by all accounts. I mean, she had an electrical problem, and then they thought they'd solved it, and she dived. And then I suspect the electrical problem reoccurred. Electricity is absolutely crucial to, well, well, to all submarines, but a conventional submarine, of course, has much less electrical power than a, than a nuclear-powered submarine has. And if she gets into, into trouble, that trouble can, can be pretty serious. Maintenance standards in the Argentine Navy are very, very poor, because if she, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a personnel problem. It's, it's, it's shortage of resources. Interestingly, the submarine was carrying 44 people, which is many more more than her normal complement of 29. I think to some extent they were using them to give some, to give some, uh, uh, some experience. But that explosion heard underwater might, I fear, have been the submarine getting to her crush depth and, and being crushed. I sincerely mm. hope it wasn't, but time appears to be running out. She had about a week's supply of air on board with more people, of course, that would restrict, you know, the amount of air, you know, of the utilisation of the air on board. And so I'm afraid I'm getting increasingly, pe increasingly increasingly pessimistic. We've this will be a huge blow to the Argentine submarine service if what I fear has happened has happened. And we've heard about the international efforts, the two Royal Navy patrol ships. HMS Which is good. 
Yeah, HMS Clyde, HMS Protector, and RAF C-130 based in the Falklands, and the Specialist Submarine Parachute Assistance Group all being joining the search. You say you're increasingly pessimistic then. I fear so, yes. I mean, it, I think it's very good. I think it demonstrates this sort of this sort of community of the sea, that when seamen get into trouble, other seamen help them. And that's particularly true in submarines. But uh, it all looks rather black, I fear. And I, fi- I, f- I fear for the crew and I, fi- I fear for the relatives. All right. Eric Grove, thank you very much for your time today. Now, senior officials at the Ministry of Defence have admitted they don't know how much Britain's F-35 aircraft programme will cost in the long term. That's despite it being the second biggest spend in the MOD budget. MOD Permanent Secretary Stephen Lovegrove was speaking to MPs at a hearing into the MOD's annual report and accounts. He said budgeting for the F-35 was not an exact science. It is a programme that has, in the words of the NAO, it is inherently immature. Um, and therefore it would be imprudent to um, put a number into the, uh, in, into the public domain, which would inevitably be wrong. Well, Lieutenant General Mark Poffley, Deputy Chief of Defence Staff for Military Capability, echoed his comments and gave the first indication that the UK may reduce the overall F-35 order if the first 48 jets turn out to be too expensive. He said many variables were still in play. So you might configure it for a new weapon that might be introduced. You might look at it operating in a slightly different configuration. So when we come back to... Uh, the number of variants. Clearly the B model is what is required to operate off our carriers. Yeah. There is a judgment to be taken about the mix of the fleet yeah. downstream based on experience of yeah. how we wish to operate the aircraft and the operational scenarios of the day. Well, let's talk to Francis Chooser, editor of Defence Analysis. Francis, good to speak to you today. You were watching this committee hearing with interest. What did you pick up? Um, it was interesting. This was the second major defence committee hearing in, what, 10 days. The committee have tasted blood and they are out for more. And both the Permanent Undersecretary and General Poffley were very much on the back foot. They were chided for the fact that they had been asked at the specific F-35 hearing to provide data and they hadn't done it. And it was dragged out of them, you know, it was like drawing teeth. Um, And the data that came out, you know, I I find uh, the PUS, he's saying things like, oh, it would be wrong to do X, Y and Z. Right. If you look at through life costs and so forth, the Australians, the Canadians before they ditched F-35, the Danes, the Dutch, the Norwegians all have forecasts for the cost of procurement and then sustainment over 20 years. Um, Do they have margins of error? Yes, and they publish all of this data. Whereas over here, basically, the MOD doesn't want to talk about any of this because they realize that their figures are absolutely out of kilter. I I know you're rather forensic in your analysis of this program, uh, Francis. Boringly so, (laughs) yes. Do do you have an idea of how much the program will cost? Um, Give an example on the data the MOD has published about the support costs to 2026, which is when, in theory, uh, 48 aircraft will have been delivered, um, they are short in support costs by somewhere around £2 billion. Um, they, they budgeted about 3 to £4 billion, but if you base it on what they've said the costs are to date, um, then they have under-budgeted. Uh, or they're assuming that somehow 
the support costs of F-35 will come down by 70% over three years. That has never happened with a new aircraft. If the overall order is reduced, is that a disaster? Uh, no, because it means it will free up money for the army. It will free up money for the navy. Uh, it will free up money for fitting new radar to Typhoon. Um, unfortunately, the obsession with the F-35 as it's the only game in town is blinding especially the RAF to the realities of the UK budget position. There are many other things we can spend that money on. Do you know what? We all talk with you know, justification about a black hole of at least 20 billion. If the RAF's, I call it the RAF's 90 uh, F-35s, of course, it's meant to be a joint force, I have to say. If we cut that back, we cut 60 to 70 aircraft on that, we will save between 9 and 14 billion pounds. Francis, you, you, name, you named all the countries earlier that are capable of uh, budgeting or forecasting with margins of area. Why do you, error. Why do you think Britain seems to be incapable of doing it, at least in this particular instance? Um, well, it's not just in this instance, by the way. It's in almost every instance. It is because the MOD has operated for so many decades um, in the shadows. And the claim that they cannot uh, harm their commercial position. It's about operational sensitivities and so forth. Um, these, these are all, um, I, I don't hesitate to use the word lies. Um, everyone else, the United States, Australia, Canada, you name it, they can put this data out in the public domain because they are spending taxpayers' money. And it, this is what is very interesting about the House of Commons Defence uh, Select Committee. They, uh, to repeat, they have tasted blood over this issue and they are not willing to accept the normal fob-offs from the MOD, and it will continue. Mm. All right, Christopher Lee, um, how do you see this? What do you think is going to Julian, happen? Uh, Julian Lewis, the chairman of the HCDC, who um, he, he, one of the people he talks to rather a lot uh, is Mark Poffley, and he talked privately, and they talk uh, at things that it's necessary for certain parts of the MOD to bring out which otherwise it wouldn't bring out. And if you wanted to, uh, you wanted to sort of uh, work out the most interesting part on the F-35 uh, during the hearing was that the question came not from many of the other members of the committee, it came from Julian Lewis himself. And he pointed the question at, at uh, Lieutenant General uh, Mark Poffley, who basically came out with I thought quite a theatrical way of doing it, saying, "Well, I suppose if you..." Did, and the question was. Uh, but basically, the basically the question is, do we know a how much is going to cost, and is it going to cost more? So you're suggesting but he wanted he wanted to get out the fact that he didn't know I how think much it would cost. Let's put it this way: I think there are certain elements in the in the, in the defence ministry who are <laughs> pretty fed up with two things. One is the new defence minister because they think that's underrated. Uh, a new a, a defence secretary, by the way, has one purpose, and that's to be good in cabinet to take his case. Uh, to cabinet and keep the, the keep the chancellor online. Now, um, there, um, when, when we have Francis sort of talking about, well, you know, if we save money here, we can get some money there, like new radars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, don't forget that the the Foreign Office uh, Defence Desk, under an ex Defence uh, Secretary, is not going to give the MOD a penny of the money that it saves. Francis Chuse, do you want to come back on that? Um, look, um, if for the sake of argument you were to cancel or just not buy in the future 60 JSFs, the Foreign Office it won't get its hands on that money. So I'm, I'm sorry, that, that is totally spurious 
um, arguments, completely spurious. Um, coming back to the point on um, General Poffley, I think we should point out one of the first interventions in the hearing was from MP Ruth Smith, who said she was glad to see General Poffley there after all of the social media uh, speculation over the weekend. The, the speculation was that he had actually handed his papers in. Um, General which Poffley is speaks, always at those meetings. Yeah, which, which speaks to Christopher's point about the fact that this is tough tough time and the issues with uh, the new Secretary of State. But I think that is worth bearing in mind. There was spectacular um, commentary coming online that there was a disturbance in the force at the MOD um, over resignations. Um, you know, the, the defence budget is there. I think we have to bear in mind the people who are most responsible for the black hole, which exists, are not civil servants. They're not politicians. It is people in uniform. And I, I think one of the biggest problems we face at the moment is the services collectively do not understand that um, their plans and their wishes to uh, embody them do not have resonance with the public. And trying to come back saying, we need more money, we need more money, mm. um, this does, does not have public resonance. So, Francis, I, I but... use some, so... I'm sorry, I use something at the moment. Um, fitting sprinklers in tower blocks throughout Britain about three okay. billion pounds. Three billion for more JSF. You make the choice. I will tell you the public will go for the sprinklers. Francis Chooser, good to speak to you. I'm sure we'll be speaking again. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, it's Thanksgiving today in America, but what in the name of Trump should Americans be thankful for? And Op Shader, the pilot's view, we hear from the squadron leader honoured for his bravery in skies above Iraq. The former Bosnian Serb commander Radko Mladic will be behind bars for the rest of his life after he was convicted for genocide and other atrocities in the Bosnian war. Mladic led forces during the Srebrenica massacre and the siege of Sarajevo. He was tried at a UN tribunal in The Hague. Lord Ashdown was appointed the high representative for Bosnia and Herzegovina after the war. He told Forces TV he's pleased with the conviction. Well, justice has been done. The horror... Um, of the Bosnian war has had at least one of its primary architects brought to justice. The murderer of Srebrenica has now been given life imprisonment and I think many who served there, as I know so many did in the armed services, because I used to visit them during my many, many visits to Bosnia during the, the wars there, um, will remember what he did and will, um, I don't know the word celebrate, but will regard that justice has been done and that's a good thing. For Bosnia and Herzegovina, you know, you can't have peace without justice. I think the prime, this is the last of the primary architect, architect of the Bosnian horrors, not all of them, by the way, Serbs, uh, who has been brought to justice. It's the end of the ICTY process. And so on all of those counts, it seems to me that uh, those who value international law, particularly as it touches on conflict, will believe that this has been a good day. But despite this, he says it may well happen again. Every time Bosnia, Rwanda, Syria, you know, no doubt in, in, in Myanmar, even at the moment, we say never again. But the tragedy of it is that war, atrocity, conflict is hardwired into the human psyche. And uh, in the end, it, um, it will always, I suppose, go on happening. If there is a single thing that can prevent it happening, I think it is a, establishing a strong framework of international law governing conflict. That's why I think this decision is, in legal terms, historical terms, so important. 
Let me tell you a story. Um, in 1997, I was in the little villages south of Suvareka in Kosovo when they were being bombarded by the main battle units of the Serb army at Nadulja Heights. I went to visit the commander the following day, and by the way, Milosevic, the day after, and gave evidence against him at the war tribunal, uh, at the war crimes tribunal for that day's work. Uh, and what really struck me is that the Serb artillery commanders at that stage were more frightened of being... Um, uh, indicted before the Hague Tribunal than they were of NATO bombing. And I remember returning and saying to Prime Minister Blair, for goodness sake, indict them now. You see, if you have a system of law, it contains not just the means by which those who commit crimes can be pub uh, punished after the war, but also a restraining factor on those who are in the conduct of war at the time. That was Lord Ashdown speaking for the conviction of the former Bosnian Serb commander Ratko Vladic. It's Thanksgiving in America, which may mean little to us in Britain apart from the ubiquitous Black Friday sales. But in the year since Donald Trump was elected president, what have the United States got to be thankful for in terms of foreign relations? Well, let's cross to Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science and the University of Southern Utah. Good to speak to you today, Pro Professor. Um, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, can you answer Well, the same to you. Thank you. Uh, can, can you answer that question? What has the US got to be thankful for in terms of geopolitics? Well, uh, you know, most of what we are thinking about is not uh, so much geopolitics, except that, uh, you know, of course, uh, we uh, have, uh, you know, created a, a sense of safety in terms of geography here. But um, uh, how, local do politics how do you mean? Have, well, geographically, the United States has always been, um, uh, if you will, in a favorable position geographically. Uh, technology has changed that in the modern world a little bit. But, um, you know, we have um, uh, friendly neighbors to the north and the south, the Atlantic uh, on one side, the Pacific on the other. And um, uh, these bodies of waters have uh, have proved even wider than the English Channel uh, for for Great Britain. Uh, and that, that says... Uh, an awful lot but um, uh, this is a new world and uh, it's a world that the United States uh, has to be a, a, um, um, a contributing member of and uh, I'm afraid that uh, you know does leave us uh, for uh, uh, a, a few thoughts about what uh, we are thoughtful for at home and part of that is a free press <laughs> a constitution uh, uh, the, la the laugh spoke volumes there <laughs> we are very happy for checks and balances, uh, though they may not always be apparent. But um, we are most thankful for elections and today uh, the knowledge uh, that in the future we have to take them seriously. Mm. Uh, what does Britain have to be thankful for and what can it be thanking the U.S. for, do you think? Well, um, um, I, I think right off the bat you have to say uh, Great Britain has to be thankful that certain people are over here and not there. Um, but uh, Shelley and I talked about this at great length uh, last night, and especially after our travels in the U.K., um, I think that Great Britain, uh, our most steadfast ally, um, uh, should be thankful to, that uh, well that you have steadfast friends uh, like my wife Shelley and myself. We <laughs> we still have a very special relationship, and it, and never 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 uh, doubt that. Yeah, it's interesting because there's been a few comments recently in various committee meetings, sort of saying that Britain has this kind of pathological um, weddedness to the U.S. and that we should free ourselves of that. Well. Um, 
it it it's it can be a two-edged sword uh, at at times i think because uh um uh, well your interests uh, to the the interests of two countries may diverge on certain points but um uh, the important thing thing i think that uh, really stands especially after brexit is that uh, great britain and the united states remain um uh, uh, very very close allies both uh, both in terms of uh, uh, defense and national security, but uh, uh, certainly in terms of uh, uh, economics and uh, and friendship. Okay. On that happy note, Professor Stathis, we'll leave it there. How, how are you spending your day? Uh, I'm cooking a turkey. Oh, uh, well done. <laughs> Shelley has already made the pies. Uh, I'm doing the turkey and the dressing, and oh. we're having friends over uh, from uh, from the neighborhood, and uh, it looks to be a, uh, a splendid day. But uh, we wish everyone there, oh. and we made many, so many friends in Great Britain, mm. uh, but we wish you all a happy Thanksgiving and uh, a, a wonderful holiday season Thank you. as it oh. begins. And what a picture of domestic bliss. Thank you very much for that, Professor Stathis. Now, an RAF fighter pilot has been awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his bravery after saving the lives of Iraqi troops fighting Islamic State. Squadron leader Roger Cruikshank went into action with his unit in May last year, helping soldiers who had been pinned down by extremist fighters despite having little fuel left in his Typhoon fighter. He spoke to Rosie Layden at Buckingham Palace. How does it feel to hold that medal in your hands? Oh, it's just a fantastic honour. It's it's. It's been such a wonderful day, you know, even just up to now, and and to be here in the quadrangle, you know, Buckingham Palace is, is such an honour itself, and to be able to see inside has been incredible as well. What a place! And tell us a little bit about your citation. Was about one particular day, the 27th of May, 2016. What? Yeah. What happened then? Well, it was a very busy day in the office, um, and quite a few things went wrong. Um, but it was really, it, it all came down to perseverance and just making sure we stuck to our training. Um, because of the where we were and fighting Daesh fighters, um, there was a few Iraqi troops that were pinned down by Daesh, and they just they just couldn't go anywhere without our help. Um, and of course, Saul's Law, when we got there to help as quick as we could, and I went to, um, to drop a weapon to release a paper for um, Saul's Law, the, um, the aircraft said no, typical computer. Um, but luckily, being such a sophisticated machine, it was able to, to move over and skip over that weapon with a bit of switchery. But this was the kind of thing that we'd you know, not really seen much before and had two seconds to, to make that decision, and luckily, it, you know, it really paid off and the weapon did its job. Uh, we managed to, to, to get the Iraqi troops away from the Daesh fighters. But of course, um, we then went on to the next thing, which, like I said, a very busy day, and straight on to the next uh, tasking, which was to try and support some Iraqi troops who were again pinned down by uh, Daesh fighters. And of course, um, this time it was my wingman who, who dropped the weapon into this building to, to take out this target. Um, and the weapon didn't work, and it just um, it, it dudded with uh, really a puff of smoke. That's that's all that happened. Um, so again, we were left with a decision. We were completely on minimum fuel. We're holding fuel to divert somewhere, so we always have enough to make sure we can actually land somewhere. But this, I had to make a decision very quickly to to use somewhere else, which is a lot more hostile. Um, let's say, and I didn't really have very long to to make a decision. But my wingman backed me up. It was a, it was a good idea to make sure that we could save these guys because they were taking casualties. The Iraqi troops were taking casualties, so. We had really no other option but to, to take that risk with going right down to, to low fuel and making sure we could get that weapon to do its job, which it did. 
and uh, I always remember uh, flying away from the target with my wingman who'd done a successful job um, and we're going straight to the tanker, to the Voyager tanker to get more fuel with the JTAC, so the attack controller saying, okay guys, hey, just don't fall out of the sky, you know, we're, thank you so much for, for what you've done, and you know, so it was, it was quite a special moment, especially when it went well. Could have been a different story, but I'm glad we, we made the right call. Squadron leader Roger Crookshank. Uh, Christopher, possibly the first time a pilot has spoken so openly and at the time on camera about Opshader. Yeah, I mean, that side of it's jolly good, but the real, the real thing in this is that talking about training, talking about what you do, talk what happens the split when, second when, when, decisions. When, when, when weapons go down, um, and also being able to uh, combat switch weapons. So the weapon says no campfire, you actually get in there. But the most important thing of this is that it's a reminder how important close air support is. One of the reasons and one of the failures in Afghanistan has, the, has been the Afghans' inability to provide its own close air support. Here we had an example where two aircraft can actually make a difference to a small part of an operation. In Afghanistan, they wish they had it. Uh, and I can think of about half a dozen other places. Close airport support is mm. one of the most important, but not the decider, but one of the most important roles of the Royal Air Force today. A sobering thought to finish on. That is all we have time for this week. Join the conversation. Christopher and I are live on the Forces News Facebook page on Thursdays from about 3.15 UK time. Today's video is already up. Or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and subscribe to the podcast. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. We'll be back the same time next week. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.